Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, before we kick things off, I have a quick word from our sponsor, Alarm Grid. Alarm Grid is a do-it-yourself security company without the gimmicks, hidden fees, and crazy contracts that you will experience all over the alarm industry. You get a free month if you're one of our listeners by going to alarmgrid.com slash longform. Here's the show. Hello. Welcome. To the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with Max Linsky. Evan Ratliff is a recent father. We'll return soon. Hey, Aaron. Hi. We just had a good, uh, we just got had a brainstorming session where we uh, brainstormed the next uh, six months or so of guests on the show. It's excellent. With Evan out, we decided to make a bunch of decisions. Yes, yes. Uh, we've, we've changed everything. It's all on this piece of paper, but uh, exciting times. We've got a lot of great guests coming out. <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of incredibly ambitious names who will never return our calls. <laughs> Ernest Hemingway will be on the show later this month. Um, this week on the show, I had Ross Anderson, who is, pro- is the editor of what I would say is the best magazine you have not heard of. If you have not heard of it, it's Aeon Magazine. It's a magazine of... Ideas, I think is how they describe it. Um, I would describe it as a very broad understanding of science, both its history and its philosophical underpinnings. They publish a ton of stuff with a very tiny staff, which I find quite impressive. I like how you're just like, I don't really like your description of your magazine. Here's another way to put it. <laughs> um, but we had a really good conversation. Yep. Ross Anderson's a good man. Uh, uh, also good people down there at uh, MailChimp in Atlanta. They make mm-hmm. products called Tiny Letter. And uh, it's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter, and we thank them for their continued support of the show. They make this thing possible. I love I loved to see people on Twitter saying that um, they're thinking about starting a tiny letter. Yeah, I love it more when people say they started a tiny letter. Hey, thinking it is the first, uh, very first step. <laughs> um, as long as uh, we're taking first steps, I'd love it if everyone listening to this show, if they have an iPhone or an iPad, took a step towards downloading our app. It's the long-form app. It's totally free. It's a great way to read the writers and publishers you hear about on this show. If you're about to go on a summer vacation, maybe you're not going to have great internet access the whole time. Everything's available offline that you get in the app. So take it with you. Read, read, read. Here's Aaron with Ross Anderson. Welcome, Ross Anderson. Thank you. It's great to be here. Ross, you are 
the senior editor at Aeon Magazine. Uh, deputy editor. Deputy whoa. editor. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. You just got yourself a promotion. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people listening to the show, if you follow long form, you probably are familiar with Aeon because we post a lot of Aeon stories. Mm. But if you don't follow long form, the website, not the podcast, closely, you might not know what Aeon is. Yeah. It's not a huge profile magazine. It's fairly new. Sure. It's, it's web only. But you guys have done what I think is a pretty incredible job of you're putting up a feature every day, pretty much four days a week, four days a week. Okay. You're a new web publication and you're publishing at a clip that's about on par with the New Yorker. Yeah. Wow. When you put it like that, were you part of the decision to publish at that rate or was that a job given to you from above? It was definitely a job given to me uh, from above, but one that I accepted eagerly. How different would your life be if you were to, sp- <laughs> to reduce that? to? T- and, and I should note that these yeah. are not filler. These are mostly 5,000-word features. We go deep. You know? go deep. I mean, I, I've, I would say uh, you know, the stuff we publish is probably in a range from 2,500 words all the way up to the obnoxiously long stuff I do at like eight 9,000 words. I mean, we cover ideas, yeah. uh, and they're oh, that, so that's how you define it as ideas I, for sure. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. Um, which gives us a break. I mean, we don't do much reportage, right? Right. Like we're not sending you to you know go cover ISIS in Syria. But the ideas mm. that you cover are not generally the uh, hot take ideas of that news cycle. I'm interested in like from an editorial standpoint. Mm. Like, do you have arguments about what's an idea and what's not an idea? Wow, great question. Yeah. I mean, I feel like early on in our life, we did a lot more uh, memoir. I mean, people knew that we, I mean, like, so it's standard to call them features. Um, maybe we're a little bit precious and that we call them essays. Yes. And, but by using that word, we attracted a lot of attention from people who write personal essays or memoir driven stuff. Right. And not only is that kind of not what we do, it's not core to our mission, but it kind of died on the vine for us unless... Unless you had someone who's like like an amazing talent, like Mary Kay Choi, right. Heather Haverleski, like people like that, you know, they can come write a personal essay for us that uh, almost is ideas journalism in a way because they're just, I mean, uh, they're able to traffic in stuff that are truly human universals. I've had conversations about like, don't write about yourself until you've written something really good, not about yourself. That kind of writing is maybe the easiest to do with a low budget, but mm-hmm. it's not... You don't want to read the hundred versions of it. You only want to read the very best version of it. On the other hand, a lot of what you guys cover is science journalism, Mm. which is not proliferating on the internet. It's not the the new hot vertical. Um, (laughs) So, so when you're when when you're choosing stories, uh, you got four slots a week. Are you thinking about a diversity of of stories across a week? Yeah. Um, And I should say that, so my editor-in-chief, Bridget Haynes, who's, I mean, uh, nothing short of a polymath. I mean, she's she's looking at this stuff from 30,000 feet across all these kind of intellectual domains Mm -hmm. and seeding the schedule so that, yeah, diversity is like a huge, huge key of what we do. And it's interesting. I mean, uh, unlike someone, uh, unlike The New Yorker, for instance, not that, you know, that's an appropriate comparison, but it's not like we have this huge print subscriber base where... No matter, you know, kind of what the quality of the features are that particular week, they go out there and everybody loves them. Like, we get instant feedback on what we do, right? Right. And when we slip on diversity, like when we have too many things that are like like three psychology pieces in in a week or 
three science pieces, like hard science pieces in a week, yeah. the audience notices and they're kind of like, hey. How do you gauge that? Because yeah. I think print magazines often gauge that through a form of voodoo. You're a, you're a digital yeah. only magazine. How, how do you know when a piece sucked? We believe in the market, right? Like, yeah. you know, analytics, you know, yeah. I mean, if we're not making all our distinctions based on like, oh, you know, you can tell how good a piece is by how much traffic it does, but right. you've got a basket of things in the digital world, right? You've got like response on Twitter and Facebook. You've got, you know, does it, because we, we cover ideas, there's kind of a devoted blogosphere almost for everything that we cover. Right. How is our piece showing up there? Is uh-huh. it making an impact? Is it starting conversations? And then, but traffic is the biggest thing. It has to be. Right. You know I mean? We, we want to be heard. How long have you been at Aon? That's a tricky question. Like, I'm, it's funny. Like, I, I wasn't a full-time staff m- member until June of 2013, but I did, like, one of the first pieces for the magazine. So I okay. feel like, hey, wait a minute. You've, you been, you've been there for a couple of years. So yeah, I'm like, I'm I feel like an Aon OG. I know that you're, like, I've, I've gotten coffee with you in the barrier. I know that yeah. this is, like, not a um, – this is not, like, a traditional nine-to-five job that you can just turn on and off. Like, how mm. – for people out there who, who listen to this show, I think a lot of people think about, wow, I could start a publication. I could do this. Like, f- Going in a few years from zero to 60 on, on four features a week, mm. how, do, how are you getting pitches? How are you getting enough material to fill out that, that roster? I mean, it is just we are constantly out there. Like, we're, I mean, we're seeking people out, right? I don't think being a new-ish publication, I mean, yeah. it's funny. Like, we, you see us as a new publication because you've got people in here from the New York Times Magazine all the time. Yeah. We're like, oh, wait, you've you're, been around you're, here you're three years. Yeah, right. yeah, we're established. But, you know, being a new-ish publication, we're still, we're still grinding, right? We're still sending, you know, stuff out to people all the time going, hey, write for us, please. Where do you find the people that you, that you send that out to? Because we focus on ideas, um, we have a distinct advantage where we do go after high profile academics a lot Mm -hmm. so we'll we'll write to people and say hey look we can make your ideas sing on the page right you're already a talented writer you're in the ideas business you know come to us and like lay out some new thinking for us you know at at length at three four thousand words and we'll help you we'll polish it to a shine i used to work in book publishing wow and generally academics were considered um, <laughs> personas non gratis. Yeah. Um, generally, uh, academic writing is frowned upon um, as mm-hmm. a as a popular pursuit um, for readers. How do you identify who yeah. like big academics who might be able to write something for a mass audience for you are? That's a two step process. I mean, first it it starts with the idea. But are you reading Look, like uh, academic uh, journals to find like where, yeah, where sometimes do you, get, yeah. you know, or or you're reading academic blogs, right? Or a nice okay. filter, right? Because they're like, oh, here's a bright shiny idea. Each of us has like beats, right? Uh-huh. Spread across the kind of the whole sort of academic spectrum. Yeah, and we'll pay attention to blogs. The science is on Twitter. Right, they're all there talking to each other all day, right? So you can eavesdrop on that stuff and be like. Who's at the center of that that we can go commission to do something really bold on it? And when you get someone, you're like, wow, you are the uh, astrophysics shit. <laughs> like, you are a very important person in astrophysics. Yeah. You have an important idea. I need you to write a 5,000-word feature that yeah. explains this to a layman. Like, what is that process like? You have to be discerning, right? I think when I first started this job, I went, I'm not going to name names, but like, you, you know, we had the experience you had in book publishing, right? Yeah. Where you go to academics and you are really excited because they're really interesting thinkers, but yeah. then they send in the first draft and it's just garbage, right? Yeah. Like they have no feel for structure. Pro style is just wooden. Um, 
they have kind of a legal brief style, right? Where yep. it's like, here's what I'm going to argue. It's very watch me argue it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's almost like I've proved this point. Now let me prove it three or four more yeah. times <laughs> in a different way. That that's sort of the general. I mean, and, and that's it's a format. Yeah, um, it's not a format that's really intended to fit into the user experience of someone reading yeah. an article. So is that like a, ed, do you edit them heavily? What we do is we look for that kind of Venn diagram person who mm. is, uh, you know, I mean, and look, they're few and far between and, you know, people are looking, for, you know, we're not yep. the only people seeking them. Like a good friend of mine, Caleb Scharf, he runs the astrobiology department at Columbia and happens to be a fantastic lyrical pro stylist. Right. You know, so... Do you go back you, and like look at that person's previous writing and sort of look for hints of good writing? For sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You ha- I mean, your job uh, seems very hard. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of background <laughs> for for getting one one or a few pieces. There's some panning for gold for sure. Yeah, um, but it's worth it. You know, it feels good. Like when you feel like someone passed a new idea kind of into the broader cultural world world through your magazine. What do you do when you get an academic and you're like, this person's got potential, hmm. but they're kind of stuck in this academic writing style and yeah. and you say well could you change this and they're like no like i've experienced great success with this writing style for the business that we're in you know and kind of the kind of writing that we promote and commission yeah. you know we're up there i feel like yeah and so you know we've got a little swag now when we go into these conversations um but also it just doesn't work right yeah you know we i mean we just tell them like no you know i mean that, yeah. that's actually you know that's, that's not gonna fly as an essay 10 people are gonna read that that's why 10 people will know about it now. Right. We feel comfortable kind of saying, hey, like, you know, you're the thinker. Yeah. You know, let us help you translate. Hey, I'm going to pause things here quickly for a word from our sponsor, Alarm Grid. Alarm Grid is a do-it-yourself security company focused on the customer experience. Their idea is to make getting an alarm set up easy for you without gimmicks, hidden fees, or crazy contracts. So maybe you've been thinking about getting an alarm for your house or your office. If you've done any research at all, you know that there's two basic scams that are worked in this industry. Either you're paying a ton upfront for the equipment or you're getting the equipment free and you have a contract that lasts until you are 100 years old. Alarm Grid does the opposite. It's straightforward. There's no activation fee, no monitoring fee. They don't get you to buy a bunch of stuff you don't need. They give you the bare minimum, which you can install yourself. I am not the greatest handyman. It took me under five minutes. Uh, you install it, and then you pay for service by the month. Cancel whenever you want. If you want to go with a different service provider, fine. That is a very futuristic way to look at an alarm service. I encourage you to go to alarmgrid.com longform. You'll get a month free as one of our listeners, and you will be on the way to a more secure office or home. Thank you, Alarm Grid. Is there sort of a division? Because you've also written extensively about big ideas in science. Do you have like a tension where you're like, okay, I've got an idea that's really valid, but I've got the wrong, the person who's behind this idea is the wrong person to write this idea. I need to get a writer and, and have them profile this person. For sure. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say we do a ton of profile pieces because the science profiles can feel so cookie cutter. Yeah. Um, I would rather have a writer who's actually willing to step in and kind of like get behind the idea a little bit, Mm -hmm. which is less straightforward journalism. It's kind of a weird in between thing, but absolutely what we call in, you know, call in say uh, a writer to say, Hey, you know, here's a bright, shiny idea over here. Yeah. Can you kind of synthesize this whole field? 
Which is kind of how I would describe a lot of your own pieces. So mm-hmm. you had a piece last week about cosmology, yeah. which I mistook when you emailed for cosmetology, which shows <laughs> my built-in knowledge of cosmology. The piece starts off as sort of the history of cosmology, and then it gets into a rather bitter fight about a, a concept in modern cosmology. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great example of a piece that I would have previously said, I do not give a shit about this. I have never <laughs> thought about cosmology. I don't I don't know anything about it. And for you to write this piece, you had to research mm. the entire history of cosmology. Like yeah. how how long do you dedicate to doing something like that? This piece was a long time in coming. If you recall, I saw you and Max out for pizza yes. um, back in Dumbo Connection. November. Yeah. And I was actually out here at Princeton to report that piece. I had been writing about space science for a little bit now. I worked with uh, Alexis Madrigal at the Atlantic, was kind of where I got my start. And he let me do some real fun sort of fact-finding Q&As with these really big thinkers in cosmology, in space science, in astronomy, um, that kind of let helped me find my feet in the field. But look, you say, hey, I never thought I'd be interested in this, right? Yeah. But like... I bet as a kid you were interested, right, in like the stars and that kind of thing, right? Um, I think when you write about these subjects, you've got to tap into that. And I'm not going to sit here and make a claim like my piece did that, but that's what I was trying to do. No, I mean, I I agree with that that notion. The in-between land that you end up as a a writer with in in terms of that piece is you're trying to tap into that sort of childlike wonder, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to tap into an academic feud mm-hmm. at the highest level, yeah. and you're trying to deliver that to a lay reader. When you have all of those uh, chords tugging at you, how do you how do you organize that process of getting educated at the lowest and highest level? Yeah, what a great question. Um, this is this is a very flattering. I'm getting a lot of good questions back at me, which is just <laughs> encouraging. My uh, no, I keep it up. Um, yeah. I mean, it's hard. Like that piece in particular is hard, right? I mean, yeah. those ideas. Uh, look, I was I was fortunate. Like, I went and spent a, a week with Paul Steinart, who's the director of theoretical sciences at Princeton. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, he spoon fed me. You know, mm-hmm. like day one, we were at the chalkboard. Do you have a background in science? No. I mean, okay. I I did in undergrad. I uh, I went to UC Irvine, which has like maybe the best philosophy of science department and I studied philosophy of science in particular oh, okay which was like I mean I was kind of a shitty student like I, it was I was just lucky to kind of catch some stuff on the fly there while yeah. I was there um, but that gave me kind of a what, grounding what in some is of these the philosophy of science what is the philosophy of science the philosophy of science is concerned with like some really abstract and boring sounding questions like what does it even mean to prove a theory uh-huh right or uh, you know you talk about things like cosmology like that the universe had a beginning some 13 billion years ago, that uh, it has an ending that we can maybe even describe and predict that's like tens, if not hundreds of billions, if not trillions uh, of years away. And like, what does that mean? I mean, that that's the kind of broader philosophy of science that I'm, I'm interested in. But did you, did you have ambitions to pursue science as a scientist? No, I mean, I... One of the things I love about writing is, like, for instance, this piece. I went deep on cosmology for, like, seven months, wrung it out, had lots of interesting thoughts flying around in my mind, and then now I'm, like, on to something else, right? Where, like, people who are practitioners in cosmology, like, that's 30 years, It's the rest of their life. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a perception that 
oh, you're interested in science, you should become a scientist. And the <laughs> people that you write about and the people mm. that Aeon generally profiles, these aren't people who got a PhD in science. These are like LeBron James level <laughs> scientists. For sure. Like if you had pursued science not to, inter- not to insult you, mm. you weren't going to become one of these people that yeah. you're profiling or that, that you're, you're oh. interviewing. Like you're you're in some ways like um, yeah. uh, George Plimpton playing with the uh, Detroit Lions. When, Not when even that. De- like yeah. I'd be like sweeping the floor of the observatory. You know, <laughs> like I mean, yeah, no, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I counted a privilege to even like play some tiny role in communicating some of the exciting ideas that are out there and like sending those out into the world. So I'm interested in what those interpersonal interactions are like because yeah. I I get to in my chair here at Long Form <laughs> I get to deal with some of the best journalists in America. I, I, yeah. I mean that very sincerely. Like, And it's something I know I never could be. And I asked them, how do you do your job? So when you're sitting down with the top, you know, top 10 figures in cosmology yeah. in the yeah. world, like how, how do you mediate that interaction? When, when they say something to you and they're describing an, a concept and you don't get it, yeah. what do you say? I say I don't get it. Okay. I mean, for sure, yeah. Do you eventually get it, or like, how, like, what is the path from not getting it to getting it when you're dealing with a subject like that? I mean, I feel like it's just being annoying and just like forcing them over and over to cram it into some kind of comprehensible language. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I did a uh, a cover story for Scientific American a couple years ago about um, this atom interferometer like instrument that was meant to find gra- gravity waves, kind of related to this cosmology piece. But anyway. Um, and uh, I mean, I went back, I was living in DC at the time and these guys were at NASA Goddard, which is right outside DC, maybe like 45 minutes away. And, uh, you know, I went back over and over, you know, I emailed them like, Hey, I still don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) Can I come in? And they were, they were cool, you know? And so I'd come in and, uh, here's the thing. I, I should say this about scientists. Yeah. When I was first writing for Alexis at the Atlantic, I'm interested in lots of things. I love politics. I like looked around at, at writing about those different worlds and it seemed like it was, I remember I had a buddy who was a lot like a pretty top flight lobbyist yeah. and he was like, oh, I can get you some sit down time with so-and-so, this senator. And I was like, yeah. wow, okay, you know, yeah. let's do it. And the hoops that I had to jump to jump through to get like three minutes with pre-approved questions. Yeah. And I'm like lazy, you know, like yeah. I, I, I won't do all that. And so science, like I went to write this piece about the James Webb Space Telescope for the LA Review of Books. Yeah. And there's a woman at MIT named Sarah Seeger who basically, I mean, it's in science, you can no longer say that a single person invented something anymore. Like right. that's just not, it's huge teams, right? Yeah. But like she was instrumental, like the top person in figuring out how you could look at a distant planet, right? like orbiting another star and figure out whether there was life there. Yeah. Right? Like that's, you know, that's a big thing, right? Yeah, it's a big deal. And you email her like, hey, I'm a dumb person. I want to find out about what you do. And she's like, do you want to talk tomorrow for two hours? Yeah. You know? So I was like, okay, look at politics, which is interesting, but those people are, you know, they're not trafficking in those like big, interesting things that are going to be interesting for a long time. Right. Right. Like questions like, is there life on other planets? That's going to be an interesting question for a long time. Yeah. This woman is at the vanguard of human beings who are trying to figure that out. Yeah. And you could like be in a room with her for three hours the next day. Right. Yeah. So, so is three hours enough though? No. Like it seems to me, it seems <laughs> yeah. to me like some of these things are like, yeah. 
just just to do one of these pieces is almost like a full semester. They'll take worth your of annoying follow up questions. Yeah, like they, I mean that's the thing. Yeah, yeah, they're they are. The good ones are cognizant that they need you on some level. So right? that's an interesting question because, like, when you were talking about access, there, mm-hmm. the first thing, like, people who've been on this show, mm-hmm. access is generally a, a question about celebrities, generally artists, musicians, etc. And mm-hmm. people have talked about the sort of the difficulty of writing profiles when you have very limited access. And it seems like yeah. here you have pretty strong access. What is the motivation for these scientists? Are, are they trying to popularize these ideas? They're doing cool things that like a hundred people know about. If you get at elite institutions, take Columbia. Yep. You know who Brian Greene is? No. He wrote that book, The Elegant Universe. He's oh, on do. TV all the time, yes. right? People who come up in astrophysics departments at Columbia notice who the big dog is. Yeah. And they know why he's the big dog because he like has cultivated that media skill set. That media skill set, yeah, yeah. exactly. So I'm not saying that the people I talk to are careerists. I'm just yeah. saying that like they're, you know, it's they're not stupid, clearly. Right. <laughs> and they, they know that like people like me are useful to them. That's in many ways an incredible opportunity as a, as a young journalist that you have access to, up to the very top. When you were starting out, I'm interested in like what what were your first what were your first gigs as a as a science journalist? The first thing I did, I wrote like a bad essay that no one should Google. Uh, for, it will be for, in the show notes now yeah. that you've mentioned it on the show. Um, I wrote this short piece for the Atlantic Tech about uh, kind of the like space exploration, which, I mean, I've written more interesting things about that subject since. Right on. So <laughs> but, like, uh, how did you get like how did you how did you get in with the Atlantic at that point to, to even get that out? out the you dome? know, I would like this is I feel like. Every story about a writer, but particularly my story, is always like the like kind of like here's a series of lucky things that happened to me. You know, yeah. Um, I was early on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, I just you know I, like I figured out that it was a cool thing to like track information across kind of like a lots of fields yeah. early on, and so um, I like I followed Alexis. He followed me. Um, in this case, I also followed Nick Jackson, who's now at Pacific Standard. Yeah. who runs their website. Um, and he said they were kind of soliciting essays for a collection about uh, the 50th anniversary of human space travel. And I was like, I have some thoughts about that. You Did know? you know that you wanted to be a journalist for your no, career at that I point? I was in law school. Oh, really? Yeah. You finished the philosophy of science and you went straight to, to law school? Uh, there was some stuff in between, but yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm going to post this interview on my Facebook and some of my best law school friends who I love yeah. dearly yeah. are going to listen, but I was bored. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, How deep in, in, into law school were you? This was late in my first year. I was at Georgetown, so I was in D.C. Um, and uh, yeah, I was flying around on Twitter at night, you know, and reading um, reading tons of science journalism and just fascinated with that area. And yeah. uh, I wasn't like an aspiring science journalist by any stretch, but I was like, hey, you know, when I was younger, I, you know, I had like the proverbial novel in a drawer that was complete garbage. And <laughs> I mean, if I found it, I'd be like horrified. Like, yeah. I hope it's, I hope it's nowhere in the cloud out there. <laughs> but yeah, so like, I was like, hey, I know how to string a word or two together. You know, maybe yeah. this is something I could take a swing at. And yeah, that one did okay. But I mean, it's like, seriously, it's, I mean, it's, really bad. Alexis gave me a shot. Yeah, yeah. like he, I think like I was a lot more raw of a writer at the time, um, but he, you know, saw that I was chasing after big ideas and he's, he's an idea person. Yeah. And so he gave me a shot, you know. So did you finish law school? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you're a lawyer. 
no, you, I not, didn't take the bar. Barred. Yeah, yeah, I'm not barred. Okay, so um, you finished law school, but yeah. you didn't. I mean, what what did you do after I you was, finished? So I wrote this piece um, my second year for the LA Review of Books on the James Webb Space Telescope that was pretty well received in the science world. Yeah, and Bridget, uh, our genius editor-in-chief um, reached out to me. Aeon wasn't even a thing yet. Like, they were, like, barely had a holding site. And yeah. she was like, I loved your piece. Like, uh, you know, before the world takes you away, like, please write something for us. So I did this big piece about bristlecone pines. Same kind of thing. Took me, like, five months to write. Like, I'm slow. Yeah. You know, I, I like to, this like... This is a piece not... I mean, bristle, calling it about pine cones is... Seems slightly <laughs> reductive. It's sort of yeah. about the history of the universe yeah. as measured by rings and in, in trees, yeah. including um, pine, uh, including bristlecone pi- pines. Bristlecone yeah, yeah. pines. Yes, it's a massive piece for sure. Yeah, yeah. no, I don't. I mean, uh, look, you've uh, poor you has had to like read through my work maybe yeah. in some condensed period of time, about like three for hours this. ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like uh, you, you know, you've noticed a theme. Like I'm obsessed with deep time and like yeah. kind of these huge time scales. And so yeah, uh, I wrote this big piece for them about bristlecone pines. Uh, right when they started, um, it did well. They asked me to do another piece. I went to Oxford to report it. This big piece about human extinction, that did well. And so I was maybe like three months from graduating law school. I had a firm job lined up in L.A. Like what were you? Gonna, what kind of law were you going to do? Litigation. Like, wow. um, yeah, white collar litigation. And, um, they were like, Hey, come work with us. And then do you, do you imagine alternate lives for yourself where you're a, like a, a litigator right now? I do. Um, I'll I tell you what, like I haven't looked back though. Yeah. I, mean, <laughs> yeah. like I can only wife, imagine that yeah. one of those things is more lucrative than the yeah. other. I don't, I don't know what <laughs> your, sure. I don't know what your salary at Aon is, but yeah. I, I know what the salary of a commercial litigator is. Mm. So my wife could probably tell you the difference to the dollar, but, um, the, uh, yeah, no, but uh, in all seriousness, she has been, I mean, she was like, look, my wife and I are high school sweethearts. Wow. And so I used to write notes from her to her back yeah. and forth back in the day. And she's like, Oh, I always knew you'd be a writer. Like she was such a romantic about that, it. She's like, go get it. Well, I mean, and you're in a position now, like, uh, you know, Alexis kind of plucked you out of, um, he put a, me on out of your sure. law school future. And you are kind of now in a position to do that for mm. other young yeah. law students slash journalists. Like I keep coming back to this, like you guys do four features a week just cause yeah. I think it's kind of amazing, but I also come to it because I don't understand how that works pragmatically. Are you yeah. are you looking for people who can write science and are young and kind yeah. of un, unhoned? Yeah. I mean, I, look, I think anyone who's in the business of what we do, uh, if you're not looking at the emerging writer scene, you're not doing your job, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, it's, it's hack work to just pay the best people yeah. to just do it over and over, right? So, yeah, I'm out there looking for sure. And we get stuff in the – like, for instance um, – there's a writer named Grayson Clary who uh, I think he's done some stuff for either the New Inquiry and or N Plus One in addition to the piece that he wrote for me. But yeah, so this guy was like studying Middle Kingdom uh, Egyptian at Yale and had this idea to write for a piece for us about um, kind of cultural continuity with language. Yeah. And he has this really distinctive style. It was such a knockout piece. Um, I loved it. And yeah, so like people like that, you know, they come in through the slush pile. We take a chance on them for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You, you've written about Elon Musk. Mm-hmm. You wrote a, I, I think probably the first like big profile I read of Elon Musk and his mm-hmm. ambitions to go uh, to Mars. Yeah. To um, not to go to Mars 
for sport, but to go to Mars for the uh, save to save humanity. To save humanity, yeah. And if you look at like Elon Musk's ideas about science, Elon mm. Musk is is um, the founder of Tesla and, and SpaceX. Um, there's an idea even within the technology industry that we used to take on the big ideas, yeah. And now we're taking on the small ideas. We yeah. used we to got the Yo app, you know. Right. We used to want we used to want to go to Mars. Now we want instant grocery delivery. Yeah. And I think that's a, a bit of a, a match for for how we regard science in, in terms of journalism, where. Um, if you have a startup in San Francisco, you can get a lot of press coverage. As I've been talking to you, yeah. um, people who are at the very top of many scientific fields are desperate to get a single piece <laughs> written about them. Yeah. Um, so, do you see? I mean, do you see that as an as an advantage you have as a science journalist? For sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm. I feel like I don't want to tell you that. You know, like, I want, <laughs> you know, like I want to scare people away from my beat. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I feel like. No, I've been lucky that there's like not a lot of people looking at the. I mean, there's a lot of people looking at Elon Musk. Yes. for sure. He's an interesting guy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's been all observation. Um, I mean, one thing that was interesting to me about him is so I've been telling you right in the course of this interview that one of the things that was really refreshing about dealing with scientists uh, as opposed to say politicians or most business people yeah. is that scientists are like wonderfully candid. They'll talk shit on their colleagues. Yes. You know, like they're just firing on all cylinders all the time because they traffic in ideas and like yes. that's what's important to them. The major person they answer to is not their boss. It's it's science. It's science. I mean, look, they're peop- it's a human, right, like activity and yep. they're driven by all the concerns that you and me and all of us. Other, like I, yep. I would, I mean, that's one of the things that's so interesting about science, right, is that yep. it's a human endeavor and so all the weird flaws and foibles that you see anywhere else in human culture show up in science too. Sure. So I'm not painting it as like this Olympian realm, right, where mm-hmm. like everyone has these, you know, noble motives and so on and so forth. But um, people are, they are in the, like they're in the world of ideas and that's what they're fighting about, right? Um, yep. It's not just about like money and, well, some of it is. Anyway. Um, one of the things that impressed me about Elon is, I mean, he's a right a fairly notable public figure. Yeah. But and maybe this is just because, look, I mean, his profile over the last four or five years has risen so much that he's almost untouchable right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, sitting down with the guy, like he was, he was guns blazing. You know, he's a pretty he's yeah. a pretty candid dude. I actually, before I went to do that piece, I reached out to Tom Junot at Esquire, who had profiled him before I did, maybe two years before. Oh, I don't think I've ever seen that profile. It's a good piece for yeah. sure. Um, it's not as good as mine, but you know, just <laughs> kidding. Um, and uh, yeah, so I reached out to him and just said like, "Hey, what was it like? You know, I'm, yeah. I'm going in there." Da 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 da. Elon Musk hates Tom Junot, I should oh, yeah. say. <laughs> um, and he he warned me about that. He's like, yeah. "Don't say my name if you're in there." He said. Look, Elon like is constantly convinced that he's the smartest guy in the room, which sounds like a mean thing to say about him, but the good side of that is he's pretty intellectually honest. He's yeah. like, you could throw the biggest, meatiest fastballs at him, and he's like, give me more. Yeah. That's what he wants. Right. Whereas if you go in kind of light and try to flatter him and whatever, he's going to be pretty soft, you know, and kind of like annoyed by you. Whereas, you know, with Elon, go like do your biggest best stuff right up front and he'll engage and that right. that was the experience i had like i went in there tough questions and he was like let's do it generally um 
when you're writing about a person, whether it's in science or art, there's two components. You're writing about the person's work. I'm I'm going to keep drawing the comparison to to a, to an artist, where yeah. you're saying, okay, this is the person's music or their painting uh, or their movies, and I'm going to take the actual person behind that and trying to draw insights into them, into their real life, to help you understand their work. Yeah, and. While that, I think that that can be reductive, it's certainly like an accepted format and one that's produced great work in art. When you apply the same ideas to a scientist and you say, I'm going to see about this person's life and their childhood, yeah. does that work as a way to describe a scientist? God, that's such a good question. I mean, I don't know that you consider Elon Musk a scientist per se, but yeah. certainly people have tried to map his childhood or yeah. um, various things in his personality to his life rather than, say, his work with uh, launching rockets. Yeah. Like, I think that's a, a, a shorthand for people who aren't yeah. necessarily up on the science to understand someone. But science is in some ways more complicated than yeah. music. Or, I mean, I mean that's yeah. not really, actually. But it's yeah. it's a different it's a different beast, and, and, and scientific lives are often more... Uh, boring yeah. than art lives. So sure. how do you fill that void in a science profile? I always wonder, it's funny, um, I'll find myself trying to do that like New Yorker thing when I go to write a, pe write a piece where I'm like, tall with bushy eyebrows and yeah. blah, 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 <laughs> you know, and then like in getting, I mean, one of the things like how I got access to Elon, for instance, is I said I wasn't being compromised. I just, I mean, I told the people I had a contact at Tesla who hooked me up with this yeah. guy named Hamish McKenzie. Great oh, guy. Yeah, I love Hamish. Yeah, yeah I know Hamish. Great guy. Yeah. Hamish um, was a, what's is up, a, Hamish? Is a journalist <laughs> turned uh, PR man. Yeah, yeah. Shout outs to Hamish McKenzie. Shout outs to Hamish McKenzie. He's a great dude. Yeah. Um, so he got me in the room with Elon, which okay. makes him even, you know, yeah, that was funny, legendary. You were saying yeah. that, I was like, I was like, well, if I was in this situation, the only contact I would have was Hamish McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no. So, and one of the like one of the things in the course of those conversations, I mean, of course, it was emails back and forth yeah. with you know SpaceX PR and blah 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 blah. Yeah. And one of the things I was able to say to them sincerely and point to my previous work is like, I don't care about Elon Musk's personal life. I right. don't. He's interesting to me as a figure in the broader history of space exploration, which I regard as an important thing in kind of like the entire human project. Yes. Right? And be sincere about that. Like, I'm not trying to sneak in side questions about like his divorce or his second wife or whatever. I yeah. really don't care. Yeah. I feel like when I read some science features and yeah. there's that like shoehorned in kind of personal color about, you know, yeah. they're th like it reads shoehorned into me. Right. For me, it's there if it's like natural to the piece, but if mm. it's a piece about ideas, it's a piece about ideas and, you know, that doesn't mean that I'm not trying to add reportage, like color, you know, here and there, yeah. whether it's setting or whatever. But I don't, yeah, I don't think it always, I don't think that a person's personal life is always the most revealing or interesting aspect of them. How do you feel that? I mean, when, you, when you're trying to do Citizen Kane without Rosebud, like what else goes in that space? Like there's yeah. only so much capacity for theories and ideas. Like if you're, if you're writing purely with theories and ideas. Yeah that's an academic piece. Yep. When you don't have the person's personal life, is mm -hmm. there a technique for other distractions in a piece? Yep. Uh, it's the history of whatever endeavor they're in. 
Uh-huh. So like you just read my cosmology piece, which as you noted, like traffics heavily in the history of cosmology all mm-hmm. the way back to antiquity. Yeah. So I could have spent those words. And I'm, by the way, I'm not, you know, this is just what I do. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> this is like, you know, so I'm not, these, are, these the, are normative claims. I think you're one um, of at least the first three <laughs> science journalists who've been on the show. So you don't, you don't yeah. you're not overtreading anyone else's technique <laughs> at this juncture. Fair enough. Um, I could have spent those words going deep on the biography of like John Kovac, who is the lead researcher on this experiment that was at the center of this piece or one of the two theorists that were feuding, right, that we talked about. Yeah. Um, I could have spent thousands of words. It's a 9,000 word piece. Mm -hmm. You know, a thousand or two thousand of those could have been like, you know, um, where they grew up and blah, blah, blah. Um, But to me, it was more interesting to bring the reader along with like, let me try to give you in that short span of time that you're reading this article, like, let me just take you through the history of cosmology. So, you have like a, a context for like these like very kind of cerebral and abstract discoveries having to do with the cosmic microwave background, which is the afterglow of the Big Bang, right? Is that, an, is that a conscious attempt to take the reader on a journey through that person's education, which is to say, mm. if this scientist went to graduate school in the 80s, yeah. um, this is the history that they would have been building upon in their own work? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm trying to place them in the history of ideas, not in like their personal history necessarily. But the caveat I wanted to add to that, though, is that, and this is why I say this is particular to me, sometimes I wonder if that's just a, like, I'm a big believer in playing to your strengths, you know? And yeah, I don't know that doing that whole, like, you know, here's this dude's childhood is right. like my game, you yeah. know? Like, I think you, you got to play to like, what, what are you kind of... What do people respond to in what you write? You know? Well, I think most, uh, I mean, I'm interested in talking to you about that because I think that most people's strength is observing small human things, how yeah. someone um, orders a soda or something and trying to do that. Yeah. And in some ways, take, tackling the history of cosmology is a um, higher bar. But I'm interested when you start going back and saying, I'm going to situate this all in the history of cosmology. Mm-hmm. The history of cosmology probably could fill... Uh, a whole uh, a whole yeah. uh, shelf of a bookshelf easily mm-hmm. how do you pick the details yeah. like, how do you know what's important to someone in this story it's the same journalistic skill set that you do like when if you go hang out with the person that you're doing a profile with right yeah. and you're like looking for those kind of bright Waiting shiny moments moment. yeah. yeah it's the same kind of thing right like i i read um a couple histories of cosmology for this piece and talked to some researchers and like historians of science for it and yeah. I'm just, you know, like you're just, it's the same kind of thing, right? You're just like setting your brain, like following your nose, you know, like what's the thing that jumps out to you? Like, oh, how weird and fascinating. And like, I'm fascinated with intellectual discovery. So I'm always trying to sit in that moment with like someone in history who like had that first thought, like, whoa, those are galaxies. Wow. Like, that's cool. And you can find that on the page. You know, you can surf through a 500 page history of a subject and like pick out the six events that were pivotal and like drop those into a paragraph and make that really powerful. Does that knowledge in in yourself build upon itself? So when you're doing these pine trees that are in some ways the best gauge of of human climate climate history that we have, and then you're doing uh, cosmology, which is about our history of our relationship with the stars, are you starting to build a, a knowledge base where you're like, Oh, I already, I already did this one. I, I already know this part. Without getting too cheesy about it, right? Like nature is one thing, you know? And so uh, inevitably those connections are kind of suggesting themselves to you as you write about nature more yeah. and more. So when you look at your own work and the stuff you're commissioning, like 
are you trying to cover a whole spectrum? I mean, do you think about like, wow, we've never done a story on X. I need to find yeah. a person to do that. Is getting somewhere new important or is it what's the biggest issues for a for a average reader? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. I'd say like for me personally in both commissioning and writing um, to connect up the sort of degraded cast of science journalists with the larger journalistic um, community. I don't know about you, but everyone you have in this room, tell me like they're easily bored. That's like just like uniform quality of journalists or writers. Um, So I'm like that too. So yeah, I'm looking around for like, okay, you know, what's the next thing that's like going to get me off to think about for some like a period of months. You've been now part of this Aeon experiment for for a couple of years. Yeah. Um, where do you go from here? Like, yeah. you've got a you've got a body of work. I mean, you've done a lot of features over two years. This is an exciting time at Aeon. Um, we are uh, we're on the cusp. We're sort of relaunching in uh, this summer. Oh, really? Um, and we are going to. I mean, Aeon is going to be a transformed thing. We're going to be doing short form stuff. Um, what? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I knew I, I yeah. couldn't come in here and say yeah. that, but yeah. no, we're going to be doing some short form. Uh, we're going to be, we, we've been experimenting with some new kinds of content and we're, we're basically, I mean, what we think we bring like a really distinctive approach to ideas. Um, we love doing stuff with a historical or philosophical dimension to it. We're going to continue that and try to expand our project and, and involve more people. I mean, uh-huh. I think we worry sometimes that we've got this like little rarefied slice of the world and yeah. we want to, we want to kind of expand our mission yeah. you know, beyond that. And yeah, I mean, uh, keep your eye on us. I think. Okay. Well, so I understand what that means to expand your mission in terms yeah. of writers and getting more people involved and more editors and, and, and potentially more, um, more different content types or whatever that means. <laughs> but what does it mean to expand your audience? Like yeah. who are you reaching and how do you reach them? Paul Haynes, who's our you know, our founder, uh, and just look, I mean, from the beginning, he's been really committed to kind of bringing in a larger audience and not having this kind of really precious, like, uh, look, I love Orion. Yeah. You know, I love what they do. Um, but it's for a small amount of people. Like Paul has been pushing the envelope for us from the beginning that, Hey, we want, you know, a bigger audience. We want to push out to more people and, you know, we want to affect the cultural conversation, not just like this very kind of like London review of books, kind of like, Ooh, you know, very precious intellectual crowd. You look at the intellectual landscape and I feel like we're covering it in a really distinctive way, Yeah. but we've got like a two or three month. I mean, our stuff is crafted and honed over a period of two or three months. Yeah. And so if not long, in my case, longer. Yeah. So like there's events on the ground, for instance, one small example. Yeah. Have you seen, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but, uh, Mauna Kea, which is a volcano in Maui, right? Absolutely not. Even okay. if you had pronounced so that properly, there was I, no I, way I would I'd have just sailed. Yeah, yeah. Well, clearly I'm butchering it anyway. <laughs> yeah. So, um, there's a volcano on Maui, yeah. which is like the best place in the Northern hemisphere to do astronomy. There are like 13 observatories on the top of it, and they're tr- the you know this big consortium of universities is trying to build a new one called the 30 meter telescope, which is would be the biggest land based telescope in the world, and would yep. do all kinds of neat things. Um, but the Hawaiians have objected because the volcano is holy in a Hawaiian sense and for environmental reasons, and so there's been this fight that's broken out among the native Hawaiian population and the scientists that are trying to put, uh, you know, this telescope on top of this mountain. Yeah. Initially when I saw that, like, I'm just like, kind of like, 
lamely kind of enlightenment dude where I'm like, like nothing shall stand in the way of science, you know, right. Yeah. But then like you started hearing from historians on the subject and there's actually this really complicated and kind of sordid relationship between imperialism and science and even astronomy specifically yeah. for a long time. Like I would have loved to commission a piece that was like really responsive within a week's time right. that could t- give that perspective on the issue, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, which, you know, shifts my perspective on it, right? Right. The difference between the operation that you run now mm-hmm. and one that can can do that is more more people, more resources. Like what? Yeah. How do you transform that? More people, more resources, and less rigidity in the kinds of content that we put uh, out. You know, okay. so like you know, not everything has to be like a superbly crafted. Well, we think superbly crafted. Yeah, like long form essay. You know, we can we can come at these issues in a more responsive. Science we can have a historian time. drop a like a real quick. You know, hey, reality check on the history of something like this, and we're well placed to do it. Right. right? And you got no competition. We got no competition. We like to think. <laughs> so, so like, so that's that's the project that that you see going forward is is yeah. getting the the uh, million year view and the this week view in sync with each other. Were you listening to our meetings this week? Or, uh, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Like uh, something like that, and that's one aspect of it. But yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, I think we're just. Uh, the last couple of years of just doing the kind of really crafted essays has been wonderful, and um, it's you know it's certainly refined a lot of my skills, and it's been it's been awesome, and I'm so proud of what we've done. But we just you know we want bigger, we want more of an impact, you know. Yeah. We want we don't want just people who listen to this podcast to know what Aeon is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be insulted by that statement. <laughs> no, you should. You're in the, a member of the elite, right? <laughs> uh, that's that's as I, I've said this before, but that is as good a place to end as any. Yeah. Hey. Um, thank you very much, Ross Anderson. Um, I will see you uh, in ten thousand years or so uh, to discuss this further. Um, we will be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, Thank you very much to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff, our intern, Molly Bain, our sponsors, Alarm Grid and Tiny Letter from MailChimp. Check them both out. Get our app. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.